Good morning. If you guys have got a Bible, let's uh, turn to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be looking at Romans 9 verses 1 through 18. Uh, this morning, and uh, if Ed only knew uh, how uh, right he was with uh, the sermon title and just uh, my attitude uh, right now uh, to um, not really the church or preaching, uh, just more my kids. Like, I mean, I just, I, I, I can barely even muster up the bandwidth to just say, just stop it, just stop it. I don't care, just stop it. And so, as I was, uh, as I was writing the sermon, maybe some of that transferred. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, could, I probably could have called this stop and start, but stop it was where I was at, and so that's as much as we've got. Um, the reason, though, for, for, the, for the title, for the subject even of the sermon is that we're, we're, we're moving into a new section of the book of Romans. Um, Paul has, at, at the end of chapter 8 there, what we talked about last week with Easter and, and, and talking about being more, more than conquerors, Paul has completed his explanation of all of life. Uh, and he says that all of life can be summed up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul has started at the very beginning. He's, he started with how things were intended, and, he, and then he's moved on to sin and what sin has done. And, and then he's looked at, uh, at Jesus and how Jesus is greater than the law even that was given, and, and how now because of that we, we have hope. And so Paul culminates... This amazing explanation, not just explanation, but defense of the gospel with the words of, now nothing can separate us from the love of God. What an amazing thing that Paul says there, right? And so like we could stop with Romans chapter 8 and it would be a great book, but there's more to be had. Because now if we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, the question becomes then, how do we live? So what now do we do? Like, how, what does this actually like look like realistically in our life day to day? Except the only problem is that Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't go into the practical day to day of everything that we would like him to. He waits till ch- chapter twelve to get there. What he does is he gets into a discussion that some people see as a digression. That some people see as maybe unnecessary. It just doesn't really make sense. If now that we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God, why wouldn't we start talking about, well, this is what it looks like. Let's let's stay positive here, Paul. We know Paul struggles with that sometimes, right? Likes to talk about sin and death and suffering and all those sorts of things. But but people struggle with this today. And and as you look at scholars and and read about uh, these next few chapters... Um, they, even, they even struggle with it so much that they think that maybe this was added later, although there's not really evidence for that. It's just kind of more of a, like, it doesn't sit right with us because, because the subject matter that Paul gets into is about Israel and how they are now or they aren't now a part of this massive story of God. And it can be a little offsetting. Um. It doesn't make sense to some people why Paul would seemingly go out of his way when he could just jump into the positive aspects of what it looks like now to live in this hope of Jesus Christ. Why he kind of goes here. We have to remember, though, the original purpose that Paul starts writing this letter. 
You see, he isn't simply trying to explain the gospel. He's also trying to defend the gospel. And so with chapter 8 wrapping up his ironclad defense of the gospel that anybody in Paul's mind uh, can't have just really anything against the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means and what it does. He knows that it's still not going to sit well with some people. Because when you say things as exclusive as if you don't have Jesus, you don't have a way to salvation, which Paul says quite a few times, right? That's going to rub some people the wrong way. And so, anytime that you can't argue with someone based on substance, what do you turn to? Character assassination, right? And Paul knows that's where this is going to go. If they can't attack the gospel, then they have two options. Attack either his character or God's character. And so that's what... Paul pushes off into. He shifts his defense and he continues the defense of the gospel, but he has to kind of take the sidetrack and say, now let me talk to you about who I am and who God is and and our character, all this. And that's what propels him into verses one through five. Let's look at it there together. In chapter nine, starting with verse one, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul knows that in his defense of the gospel, one of the first things people are going to look at is the person defending the gospel. And when Paul says, apart from Christ, there can be no salvation, people are going, especially his own people, are going to see him as cold and uncaring. He's going to be seen as a traitor Amongst the very people he cares so deeply about. And so Paul defends himself here to the best of his ability. He says, I'm not lying. The Spirit bears witness that I would do whatever I can. Paul, Paul goes through a, a, a list of things that he appreciates so much about the people he's come from. That it is to them that belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. the world. I mean, he goes through all this stuff and he's like, I love being a Jew, and I love the people of Israel, and I love that God has chosen us, and I love it so much, he doesn't go into here, but we know elsewhere, that he cares so deeply that he has been stoned, he has been beaten, he has been imprisoned, all because he would not give up on the Jewish people, and he kept going to them time and time again, preaching the good news of Jesus, sharing the hope of the gospel. Paul says that it hurts him so much that his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected Jesus Christ and the amazing things that his gospel offers, that he would be willing to himself pray that he was cut off from this amazing thing that he's just defended over the last eight chapters so that they would accept it. That's an incredible idea. Paul says, I would myself be cut off from the thing I love the most 
for their sake if it were possible. But it doesn't work like that. And Paul says, with that, what more can I say? That's who I am. That's what I'm about. And so he knows then in people's minds they'll turn to God and they'll look at him. That God would take the people that he had promised so much to, that he said he would always be with, that he said they would be his chosen people, and how could they potentially be brought into question somehow? Seems like a God that would do that is an unfair God, an uncaring God who doesn't keep his word. And if that is the case, that he is those things, it undermines everything that the first eight chapters of Romans is built on. And so this spurs Paul on there in chapter 9, verse 6 to say, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, period. Even though it may look like it, trust me, God is faithful. It's this sentence, this short little sentence in in chapter 9, verse 6, that's going to launch us into the next few chapters that we'll be looking at over the next few weeks. Paul starts defending God's character at this point. And what we see uh, for us is kind of a a wake-up call of who we are, and maybe maybe we're not as mature as we like to think we are. Let's actually jump down to verses 14 through 18. We're going to do this out of order because it works better for uh, my sermon. And, um, I mean, who was Paul to choose what order we talk talk about these things, right? So there in verse 14, reading through 18, he, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Oh man, we don't like the sound of this. I mean, if you're like me, you read it and you're like, yeah, no, I I don't know, Paul. That's... Maybe it's true, but that's, I don't know. It's not the way I would say it. We don't like the sound of he wills. It's his choice. Who, whoever he wants. And, and, and it doesn't matter what you do or anything like that. It, it, it's God doing it. Man, that rubs us the wrong way. We kind of, you know, turn our seats and we're like, maybe, can we just jump to chapter 12? I mean, can we skip all of this stuff? You need to get something here. This is what Paul is saying. Get this. God is bigger than you. You know in Goodwill Hunting, uh, there towards the end, when uh, Robin Williams is uh, there in his office with Matt Damon, and, uh, and he tells him, he says, uh, it's not your fault. And Matt Damon's like, yeah, I, I, I know it's not. And he's like, no, 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 it's not your fault. And he just keeps saying that over and over again until the weight of that sets in. This is our Goodwill Hunting moment. Because I say to you, God is bigger than you. And you say, yeah, yeah, I know that. 
No, 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 no. God is bigger than you. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know. No, 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 no. God is bigger than you. And you're like, this is getting weird and uncomfortable and stuff. And I say, no, no, no. God is bigger than you. God is bigger than you. God is bigger than you. Just let the weight of that set in. Because we'll say it, but we often don't think about what that actually means. If you now feel the full weight of that, let me ask you a serious question. When did a hundred days of school become a thing? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, this whole idea, I mean, if you don't, I mean, if, if you've got kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But, but it, maybe, maybe, maybe you didn't have kids when this was a thing in school. But what it is is that on the 100th day of school, they have this big celebration that they've been in school for 100 days, right? Um, it's the most ridiculous thing ever. It, it wasn't a thing when I was a kid. When I was a kid, what we had was called February, and it was the worst, it was the worst because the weather was awful. We were all sick of it. We were sick of each other. And even though February on the calendar is the shortest month, it's the longest month. We all know that. And then just to make it even worse, they stuck the worst holiday right in the middle of it, right? And so now what they have is 100 days. And you know why 100 days? This is not just like simply like, you know, uh, like, you know, in my day, we had to walk to school in the snow, both uphill, both ways, you know, sort of thing. No, there's a real reason for this. 100 days, the celebrating 100 days of school is so awful because it gives a false sense of accomplishment. So much so that when my daughter uh, was working on something a few weeks ago, and uh, she was uh, struggling with it, because don't tell her this, but she was doing it wrong. Um, I came over, and I was trying to help her out with it. And I said, you know, I said, Eden, no, it works this way and everything. She got really frustrated, and she threw her hands down, and she goes, Dad, I know what I'm doing. I've been to school for 100 days. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, no, you did not just say that. So I had to, I had to drop some knowledge on her. And I said, well, let's think about this for a second. You've been to school for 100 days, and you're in kindergarten. That's not even a full year of kindergarten, right? You haven't graduated kindergarten. She goes, yes. And I said, you know how many years I've been to school? Over 20. And so I've got way more experience than you. So you might, you just might benefit from opening yourself up to my perspective and how I've done things and kind of get back in your place. Because you've only been to school for 100 days. Man, I put, her, I put her back where she belongs. Like she, And because she's our sensitive one that feels everything, she started crying. And so then I had to apologize to her because I had been insensitive, um, even though I was pointing out the truth. And she got a cookie out of it, and I got played somehow. So I came out the loser in it. It is so annoying. Like one of the most annoying things in life right, is when people that have less experience than you in something tell you how to do something, right? Most annoying thing in life. 
we know all the time, we have a walking resume in our head. We know exactly what we've done and how often we've done it and the experience we have and the right to our opinions that we own. And when some people try to come in and give us a different perspective, we start comparing. Do, have they done this enough? I mean, I get so upset when people try to tell me how to paint because it's like, come on, I did this for 11 years. Like, don't even, like, painter's tape is not a thing in my world, right? We all feel that way. We know that. Like, and, and, and so it bugs us so much when, when people nitpick us, when, when, when they question us, when they say, I think there's a way that you could do it better. A few years ago, we had this, um, hardly ever is my whole family together, but we were all together, and it's a really, we were out on the coast, and uh, we were driving around trying to find a, uh, a place to eat, and so you know on the coast, it can be hard to find parking spots sometimes, so my dad was driving, and the, and the really bad thing is, is when all six of us get together, that means that there's five smart Alex in the car, and my mom, who's the sensitive one, and so we're, we're driving around, and we're just, as my dad's trying to find a parking spot, we're just giving him a hard time, and we're joking about stuff and everything, and my dad finally, who's the most patient person in the world, finally just yells, I have driven all over the world. Everybody be quiet. And as soon as he does it, he turns down a one-way street and there's a car coming down the street <laughs> and he had to back up and turn around. Man, we did not let him hear the end of it. Like it was, it was all over. And like now every family gets together. Somebody just yells out at some point, I've driven all over the world. What Paul is saying is God is bigger than you, so stop talking. Stop talking. See, because here's the deal. Talking assumes a peer-to-peer relationship. Talking assumes we're on the same level and we bring the same expertise to the situation. Talking assumes that God can gain something from our perspective. This is not a peer-to-peer relationship. It's just not. What's more is you're never going to learn anything just spouting off your perspective all the time. Throwing your hands up and saying, I've been at this thing for a hundred days. I think I know what I'm doing. You see, this could be misunderstood by what Paul's saying here isn't just simply like stop talking because God doesn't want a conversation. You see, this isn't to protect God's fragile ego. This, is, this isn't because God can't handle our questions and our doubts and our concerns. No, 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 no. He says stop talking for your own sake. This is for us, not for God. Start realizing who you are and who he is and who maybe has the bigger, better perspective on things. He says, stop talking and start kneeling. Start understanding that he is God and you aren't. It's not about whether or not you can ever talk to him. It's about how you enter into talking to him. It's about the posture that you come with and the understanding that is the foundation of all of it. That you come to him and you say, not so much, God, have you ever thought about, but God, I'm struggling to understand this. Help me see it your way. Start understanding that he is God and you aren't. Start understanding that he is a God that could harden Pharaoh's heart so that his glory could be shown. 
I have a hard enough time convincing my wife of things she doesn't want to do, let alone hardening Pharaoh's heart. That we need to be like Isaiah and in God's presence and seeing how magnificent he is and how big he is and how grand and powerful that he is. That we just say we are so dirty and we wish to die because we can't stand in his presence. That we need to be like Moses that has to be hid in the cleft of the rock. Because God says, if you see my glory, just even a little bit as I walk by, you'll die. We do so much talking about the relationship that God wants to have with us. And we do it rightly because he does want to have that with us. But we have to also have a healthy fear of the Lord that we understand how big and how magnificent he is. And that he is God and we aren't. It's when we start to do that we can, that we can begin, we can, we can slowly in our life appreciate the beauty and the depth of him and his work instead of starting with the questioning that we so often do, that God has to prove himself to us, that he has to do it our way, that we have a perspective that he doesn't have. I mean, just... Come on, Jonathan, I got two more weeks, man. Let's... Well, I mean, we ask the question, why, why does God allow evil, right? I mean, if we all had our way, the evil wouldn't exist. I mean, why does God, God allow guys like Vladimir Putin to just, like, keep doing their thing, right? I mean, that's evil, right? And so, like, if we were God, we would take care of evil. But, but the question is, is it, well, what's your standard of evil? Because the standard of evil, because we always assume from our side that justice means that evil people get it. But the standard of evil is not Vladimir Putin, and as long as you're better than him, you're safe. The standard is Jesus Christ, and if you're not as good as him, you're going to get it. And so maybe the thing is, maybe the great thing is, is that instead of God dishing out justice the way we think he should dish out justice, the amazing thing is, is that we all have a chance. We question the way he seems to give mercy to some and, and to harden others. Why doesn't it matter how faithful I am? Why doesn't it matter the things I do? Why, why, why am I having to struggle when I have given up so much for God and those people are just seemingly going through life just careless? And they have everything. And they haven't had to deal with the loss and the pain. Where's the justice in all of that? William Shakespeare tapped into this idea and this questioning in, in our hearts uh, in, his, in his play, The Merchant of Venice. There in The Merchant of Venice, um, the, the character Portia uh, says this. It says, um, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice, none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy, and that same prayer doth teach us all to render. In the course of justice, none of us will see salvation. And so what we need is mercy. As unfair as it seems that we can't earn God's mercy, the reason we can't earn God's mercy is because mercy can't be earned. That's the reason it's mercy. It's only mercy when it is freely chosen to be extended and it hasn't been earned. 
Maybe it's the fact that the mercy is that mercy even exists. Maybe as we're questioning, why does God show seemingly more mercy to some and less mercy to others and harden some hearts and everything like that, the fact that we can even talk about mercy and ask these questions is the very proof of how merciful God actually is. And maybe the amazing thing is, not just simply that we can talk about mercy, that, but that he's a God that has promised us that he longs to show us mercy. It's not that he just cuts us off. Like, he wants to be merciful to us. He's, he says this several times, all throughout Scripture, but just a couple times. There in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, he says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Jesus says something very similar as he's coming at the end of his life to Jerusalem and he looks upon Jerusalem. He says, I mean, you could just feel it in his words. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing even in everything Israel had done, all the ways that it had turned away from God, time and time again, God longed to show his mercy to Israel. We have a God that longs to be merciful to us. And just because from our perspective, it looks as though he chooses not to be merciful to some and chooses to be merciful to others, we have to remember we are not God. We don't see it completely. And so we need to stop talking and start coming to him and saying, show me truly who you are. I think there are so many of us here this morning that that's exactly where we're at, that the thing we're always struggling with is we're always coming to the guy and we're like, explain this to me, and, and, and how does this work, and, and why isn't it that way? And, and we're not willing to humble ourselves enough and say, okay, I'm just going to start in a place where we're, go, we're going to, well, let's, let's assume or accept that you're God and I'm not. And so maybe start giving me your perspective on things. No, it's the fact that we feel entitled to something. And it's for that very reason that, that, that Paul had talks about back in verse 6, if we jump back there. Because again, he got the order of this all wrong. He says there, starting in verse 6, going through 13, he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. I 
There in verse 6, he says, just to repeat it, he says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. Paul says not all children are actually children. Paul is distinguishing here between being part of the nation of Israel and Israel that believes in the promise of God. And there is a distinction. He says it's not about who you're born to. There's nothing you get by just simply existing. And so his other lesson is we need to stop demanding. Stop demanding, Paul says. See, in Paul's time and going back all through Israel's history, it was a patriarchal system. And so birthrights were the norm for them. It, it, it made sense to them that just simply based on who you were born to and in what order you were born meant you were entitled to certain things. Now I say that, and you're like, that is a bunch of bogus, right? That somehow your older sibling, I mean, all of us old, oldest siblings, we know this is true, but that somehow your oldest sibling is more valuable than you are, just simply because they were born before you, right? Or that somehow because of who your parents are and what they had done and the choices they were made, you're entitled to something more or something less. I mean, this sounds like the most foreign thing to us, right? Paul brings up, but it was like super normal to them. But Paul brings up two cases here. He talks about Isaac and Ishmael who were born to... Sarah and Hagar, right? The idea here, though, is what he's talking about and saying and bringing up their cases, it doesn't matter who you're born to. And then he brings up Jacob and Esau. And so what he says there is it doesn't matter what order you're born in. doesn't matter who you're born to or in what order. See, all the things that we think matter, Paul says, don't. All the things that we look at and we say, this is what's valuable, this is what's important, this is what sets me apart from people, this is what makes me special, they don't. It's, it's here that Paul is actually splitting the church into two. The biggest dividing feature in the church at that time was Jew and Gentile. And the church in Rome had undoubtedly been started with Jewish believers. And so it's pretty natural to think that if the church had gotten started there, what's more, that they had been people of the promise, part of God's chosen people, not too much of a stretch to think that probably they would have thought that afforded them some kind of special status, right? He's talking to a church now that is, in all likelihood, majority Gentiles. Because as we know, Gentiles were much more receptive to the gospel. And we see that played out through church history, but just even in, in many of the letters and some of the things going on, uh, even all the way back to the book of Acts. And so it's not hard to imagine that the Gentiles saw themselves as important and having a special status just simply based on their numbers. 
and based on the fact that they were a people group that had been more receptive to the gospel than the Jewish nation had. Paul is saying neither one of you is entitled to anything based on any of this. See, everyone, everyone has a reason to think they are special. Everyone has a reason to think that their people group is special and set apart. Everyone has a reason to think that they are entitled to something over and above the people around them that are different than them. Paul says you don't. If we were to fast forward this to our day, I think the thing that Paul would be talking about, I think the biggest division in our church usually, I'll just say our church, and I'm leaving so I can just drop it, (laughs) is age. Young and old. That is the Jew and Gentile of our day. The older we are, the longer we have been in the church, particularly this church, we are more likely to think we are entitled because we have been around. We are owed something. We deserve something. We've earned it. We've given. We've sacrificed. It's ridiculous that these younger people would come along and ask for things. Wait your turn. We deserve certain things and considerations because of the fact that we are older. We're entitled to it. And so we demand it. If we're younger, we see it as our turn. These people aren't going to be around in a few years. It's time for us to have a chance. There's more of us. I mean, we're the ones making people. Can't have a church without people. We deserve for them to get out of the way because we're the future. The things that they've done, they don't work anymore, and so their perspective isn't any good, and all of the things that we normally hear, I don't think I have to go into much detail, but we know this. These are the discussions we have with people in the church. The discussions you're going to have when you go to lunch today. It doesn't entitle you to anything. Paul says, stop demanding it. You're acting like children. Because you're demanding things that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we are really good about like putting it in terms of it's for the kingdom and it's, it's so people can worship. And it, it, it's not any of that, Paul says. It's not any of that. What's more, it, it, it's not up to you to decide who is the one that's entitled, who's of more value, who's better, because God's already done that. And what God says matters, and what means someone is not even entitled to anything, but is able to receive anything, is those that, as he says, believe in the promise of God. Not the people who have been around the longest, not the people who are making the most babies, not the people who have the newest and best ideas, not the people who have the track record of success. It's the people that trust in Jesus. And so he says, stop demanding things and start desiring God. Stop talking about all this other stuff that doesn't matter and start talking about the one thing that does matter. 
It is the children of the promise that are, are his offspring. Not all children are children. So easy for us to be people in the people of God, but not actually God's people. We get wrapped up in what we deserve, and that consumes us so much that we stop desiring God, and we use his name, and we have the right language, but we're so far from actually like wanting him. And there is a big difference between needing something from him and needing him. Do you know the real tragedy of the parable of the lost son? It's not the fact that the son took his father's money and said, I wish you were dead, went off and squandered it. It's not the fact that the oldest son couldn't see what he had. It's the fact that the father didn't actually have any children that just wanted him. My li- um, I- I'm pretty tired at this point in my life of people needing things from me. Um, so stop it. Um, it just feels like right now that like every si- I mean, it's like, how many signatures can you sign in a day for stuff, right? And you always have people calling and saying, I need this. I need a decision on that. What do we want to do here? If I hear the word sump pump one more time for repairs, I'm going to scream. Just people needing stuff all the time. And so we, we were out to dinner the other night with uh, some family. And uh, it was our last time that we were going to get to see some of them for a while. And uh, so we're sitting at the table in the restaurant. And, and down at the other end is, is uh, my son, Wesley. And, uh, and Wesley, uh, Wesley just says out of nowhere, says, hey, Dad. And this is the thought that crossed my mind. And that split second, I thought, if, if a kid asked me, that says he needs to go to the bathroom, I might scream. Like, I just need someone to not need something from me for a second. Wesley said, hey, Dad. And I, I, I said, what, buddy? And uh, he leans out down the table and he says, I love you. And they darted back in and started throwing something at his sister or something like that. I don't know. It was like the best I love you ever. That he didn't need anything from me. He just desired me. And he desired to, for me to know that he loved me. That's, that's what God wants. Stop demanding things of him. Stop demanding things of his church. And just start desiring him. Start wanting him. Because that's what he wants from you. He just wants you. I think we need to come back and stop complicating what all of this is meant to look like, what, what, what church is and, and, and how we do it. And it's, it's really simple. It's about desiring God. And I think the way we start desiring God is we start in that foundation of he's God, we're not. And when that all overwhelming, just who he is, just grabs hold of us, like how can we not desire him and who are we to demand anything of him? But here's the deal. This isn't just like, this isn't something that like, it's like, here, do this. Like, just go start desiring God now because, like, you can't do this on your own. Because you're going to get caught up in all the same junk. You're going to get caught up in, in, in your messed up, one sided views of mercy and justice and what's right and what's fair. 
And, and so the thing that you need is the very thing that he's given us. It's the Holy Spirit. That you need the Holy Spirit to help you start wanting God more than your own way. You need the Holy Spirit to help you start seeing a bigger picture and caring about people that aren't like you. You need the Holy Spirit to start checking you and reminding you, I don't have a right to demand anything. I'm just so glad I get to be with him. You need the Holy Spirit so that you can be content with where you are and grateful for who he is. It's not something, it's not enough just to say, start desiring him. It's like, okay, I've had it wrong all along. I'll, I'll do that right now. No, like it, it's got to be something outside of you. This is not something in you that you're born with that you can just like conjure up and kind of work out in the gym or, or reading enough scripture. Like you have to ask the Holy Spirit to help you start desiring God more than you have to this point. That is the thing that we all need. And if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to shut our mouths and start loving him for who he is and not what he can give us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would search us out, that you would look through the caverns of our soul, the places that we often ignore, that we just don't think of, that we don't inspect ourselves, that, Lord, you would, this would be a time of inspection. That we would be so overwhelmed by who you are, that we would want you so desperately, that we would, with our whole heart, truly cry out, I want to desire you more than anything else. I want to desire you only. Father, would you bring us to that place? I, and I, I know it's a lot to ask in the moment, but I know your Holy Spirit can do that. But even just beginning the process, that, that we would commit to that process of, of, of looking at what is in our hearts and our souls that is not of you, what we are desiring more than you, and even what's more, Lord, what we are putting your name on when they are really our desires. And Father, in showing us those things, would you give us the strength and the faith to hand them over to you and say, that's yours. Because I want you to be mine. Would you show us the beauty of what that kind of a relationship looks like? And would we not be satisfied until through the power of your Holy Spirit we have it? It's in your gracious and awesome and holy and magnificent name we pray. Amen.